Okay, good morning. Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Again, thank you for coming. thought I'd start by asking a question this morning. Very simple question. What does a Christian look like? Or what should a Christian, what should a Christian look like? And how would you describe the character of a Christ follower? Now, for me, early on, I had some exceptional role models. My parents and friends of my parents, members in a local church, um, they were kind, they were thoughtful, they were industrious, they were humble, uh, they were service-oriented, and they lived simply, and they were also faithful in their marriages. I wanted to show you a picture. Let's see that picture, Scotty. I just thought I'd take a moment on this. And uh, this is my mom and dad, and it is 1947, and they were married on the Ides of March, March 15th, and they're still alive. (laughs) So this past week, they experienced their 70th wedding anniversary. Just phenomenal. (laughs) Have you ever gone to a card store and tried to find a 70th? They kind of end at 65. I think it's the economies of scale at work. And so I found one that had this little dial that began like at 45, and you could just flip it all the way up, 46, 40, all the way to 70. And actually, it might have been beyond 70. And I, I, in my note to my dad, I said, my mom and dad, I said, hey, I just should have bought this card at 50, and I could just flip it every year and still, <laughs> still apply. Now, I know that everybody's not had the same experience with Christians or the Christian church. And if the average person on, their, on the street described their interaction with Christians, they might not give the same glowing report. They might say that Christians are superficial and hypocritical or judgmental. And I think if we were honest, we'd have to say that though some of that criticism may not be fair, much of it is fair criticism. It is a mixed record. I was given a very good head start, but I'm afraid that I am the exception and not the rule. And while you and I cannot speak to the entire Christian world, we can't change the entire Christian community, um, we can impact the next generation right here, right? And we can impact our relational parish. Those are the people that we live, work, and play alongside of. And my parents and their friends, one thing about them is they took to heart the words of Jesus. And a passage of scripture that meant a lot to them was the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount covers Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It is actually Jesus' single longest discourse. It includes the Beatitudes, which we will cover today, and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, which is repeated by tens of millions all across the world. Now, it's helpful to see how the Sermon on the Mount fits into Matthew's whole gospel because Matthew had a definite idea in mind when he wrote his biography of Jesus. In chapters 1 and 2, he describes his birth. In chapters 3 and 4, he describes uh, Jesus' Preparation for ministry and the beginning of his ministry. And then if we skip ahead to Matthew 8, 9, and 10, what we find is 
evidence for the breaking in of God's kingdom to our world. There are healings. There are miracles. A little girl is raised from the dead. There's amazing things that happen. And so in between that preparation and the kingdom breakthrough, we find Jesus giving this core teaching of who a Christian is and what they're about and what their lives should look like. The kingdom of heaven, or the sermon, this sermon, teaches us how to receive, enter, and live in the kingdom of heaven. What it means to invite Jesus' rule and his reign in our lives. Now, the kingdom of heaven sometimes overlaps with the values of our culture. But more often than not, it reverses those values and it calls Christians to be authentically different. To live in an upside down kind of way. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world are really two different spheres, two different worlds. So here's what I want to do this morning. So that we can see the forest through the trees, I want to first take a big picture look at these three chapters. And then we're going to go back and focus on the first 12 verses. Because they definitely serve as an introduction to what follows. It is essential that we understand the first 12 verses and what follows and how it relates to what follows after it. And so here's the outline we're going to follow this morning. It will be a new law. And a new heart and a new hero. Okay? Will you stand? And I'm going to read the passage that we'll explain this morning. And I believe it's, uh, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's page 804 or 805, somewhere, somewhere in there, the first, first book of the New Testament. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Father, through the power of Christ and through his spirit, we ask you to open up our hearts and remove whatever might be in us this morning that would prevent us from seeing you and experiencing, Father, you this morning and hearing your voice. And for my sake, Lord, again, just allow me to be a, a, a vessel, just a, a humble, empty vessel, through whom you can speak. Uh, For Christ's glory, we pray. Amen. 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 
Okay, so let's look at this first part, a, a new law. Now, if you look back, if you're in your Bibles, look back at verses 23 through 25 in chapter 4. We discover the excitement surrounding Jesus. Opposition had not yet solidified against him. He was experiencing a tidal wave of popularity. Services were overflowing. The press is positive. He was in high demand wherever he went. People followed him. But Jesus, for his part, always kept the end goal in front of him. He was initiating a movement that must last beyond him. So he pulls away his disciples, those following him, and he tries to lay a spiritual and moral foundation that will last way beyond his life. Now, it is not insignificant that he chose a mountain. In going on Mount Sinai, there is an obvious parallel with Moses, who also received a law on the mountain, the Ten Commandments. By choosing a mountain, there is an echo of Moses and the Old Testament and calling people back to the law of God. This was needed because the true meaning of the law had been misconstrued and had been lost over the centuries Plus, the Old Testament, as it stood, remained incomplete. As we're going to see, Jesus will complete what was missing. He will provide the final puzzle piece. He will solve mysteries that the prophets longed to understand. He will blow fresh wind on this law and give it new meaning. This is why... We have called the Sermon on the Mount a new law. This is an incredibly significant moment in redemptive history. Throughout the Bible, there are these pivotal moments when God calls his people back. And when he does, he takes them to a mountain. We see this with Moses, with Joshua, and with Ezra. This new law will describe the upside-down kingdom life. We're going to cover a breathtaking amount of topics over the next three months. Our relationship with the world and with one another. Sexual, speech, and marriage integrity. Responding to enemies and responding to the poor. Our prayer life. The emptiness of living for the approval of others. Our attitude towards money and towards things. We're going to cover how to enjoy life. How to live in the moment. How to gain freedom from anxiety. We're going to cover our attitude towards circumstances and how to respond when people treat us wrong or when people are wrong. How to respond to that. Now, by comparison, Jesus is going to help us understand this. And he's going to help us by comparison and contrast to get a clearer picture of the character of a Christ follower. Jesus is going to also describe what we should not become. Whereas we might have assumed devotion on those who appear religious, we're going to need to be more discerning. Jesus will urge us to not not be like 
the seemingly pious Pharisees who had so lifted up reverence for God, who had so lifted up the law that they lost all sense of relationship with and love for God. Having lost the true purpose of the law, they persisted in an external display of obedience, but inwardly they were like ghosts. On the other side of the equation, Jesus' followers should not be like the general culture who remain religious, but only in a superstitious way. Up to this very day, for most people, religion is insurance. It is insurance against painful circumstances, against evil spirits, or a bad report card on Judgment Day. These kinds of folks have no real interest in God. But if you follow the way of Jesus, if we follow the way of Jesus, you will be completely different. There will not be anybody like you. Now, like the Old Testament, this new law is, will show us, it's going to show us how far off the mark we are. It is going to hurt. I'm just giving you a little advance warning. It's going to hurt. It's going to be challenging. It's going to strip off any remaining self-righteousness you have or the belief that you are naturally a good person. You're going to have to conclude that you must change. Now, you're going to be tempted over the next few months to argue against this new law. To rationalize how it doesn't apply to you or the reasons that you're excused from practicing it. Don't be surprised at this. Don't be surprised. This is our natural self struggling to give Jesus undivided rule in our hearts. Now, this law has two purposes. It breaks out a little differently based on where you are spiritually. Like the Old Testament, this new law shows a person who is not a Christian that they cannot please God by themselves. For those who are Christians, it shows us how to please Him. The difference in how people respond to the Sermon on the Mount the difference in how people respond to the Sermon on the Mount reveals where they are in the kingdom. Tim Keller tells a story of a University of Virginia professor who gave a group of college students an assignment to write an essay on the Sermon on the Mount. Sounds fun. Now keep in mind that the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the 60s and 70s, used to enjoy wide acceptance and respect. Gandhi is said to have meditated on it daily. The Sermon on the Mount greatly influenced and informed Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. But for all the respect it has enjoyed, it is not clear how many Americans have actually read it. <laughs> These university students who had to read it Give us a more virgin response without the borrowed goodwill of the past. They wrote in their essays that they found the sermon ridiculous. Its demands impossible. They felt exposed and condemned. Some said it was disgusting. 
Now, if you have not yet affirmed your relationship with Jesus, this new law will crush you with its seemingly impossible demands. For Christians, this new law is meant to be practiced. All of it. It's for all of us, not just a special few. And the Christian's response to the sermon should be something like, I should live like this, but I'm not. But I want to be. I want to live like this. Someone has said it this way, the law sends us to Christ to be justified, to seek and to receive forgiveness. Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified or to be changed. Now, there is good news for those who are not yet following Jesus. If you're in that camp, there is good news this morning. We can't live out Jesus' call for authentic change by trying harder or uh, personally resolving to do it or a strategy for improving your existing self. We need a whole new recreated self. We need new life and we need new power. And this is how the first 12 verses relate to the rest. The verses that we read describe what a Christian is before he or she can live it out. They describe who we are and all the kind of life called for in the Sermon on the Mount. It grows from a certain kind of soil and the soil is described in these opening verses what have been called the Beatitudes. So let's turn there now. It's our second part of our outline is the new life. The Beatitudes describe what our new life feels and looks like. It's like if you were holding fabric and you could feel its texture. This is what the Christian life looks like. Let's begin in verse 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it says, poor in spirit. We definitely see at times Jesus is lifting up the poor. But this is not the economically poor here. This is the spiritually poor. Meaning that before we can come to Jesus, we must recognize our absolute spiritual bankruptcy. We have nothing we can offer God. We have nothing deposited in the bank spiritually. And we are in this condition because we've sinned. And even my good deeds under closer inspection are often done, done with wrong motives and for wrong reasons. Look at the next one. Second one. Blessed are those who mourn. Wow, that seems upside down. Happy are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. What does this mean, Jesus? This is the second step. It is one thing to admit you are spiritually bankrupt. It is another thing to mourn over it. It is another thing to weep over it. To mourn the loss of innocence, our virtue, our self-respect, 
You know, when we hurt another human being, we are often not brought into sadness until we actually see their pain. And this is part of the challenge that we have with God. When we betray God, we often don't imagine a God who is pained and who is hurt. We do imagine anger, and that typically drives us away. But we rarely can imagine the hurt and the pain that God feels. If we were able to see that, I think it might transform the way we felt about our betrayals of Him. You know, the Old Testament prophets would paint very vivid pictures of how God felt about our personal betrayals. Here's the third one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek adjective for meek means gentle, humble, considerate, and requires us to exercise a kind of self-control without which all these qualities would be impossible. The opposite of meek is overbearing and domineering, manipulating others to get your way. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones emphasizes that meekness denotes a humble and gentle attitude to others, which is determined by a true estimate of ourselves. When we empty our pride and confess and mourn over our spiritual bankruptcy, we will quickly realize that God The way that God and others think of me, as well as they do, is undeserved. And when we have that estimate of ourselves, we will find qualities like gentleness and patience being the byproduct of that estimate of ourselves. Let's look at the very next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Aware of our poverty, mourning over our sin to God and others, we begin to long for righteousness. But what is righteousness? Now, many Christians tend to equate righteousness with private morality. And it does include that, but it is far more. John Stott says there are really three kinds of righteousness in the Bible. First, there's a legal righteousness. And that is our justification before God. Sinners made acceptable to God through the cross. Second is moral righteousness. That is the character and the conduct that pleases God, which is an inward righteousness of heart and and motive and thoughts and attitude. And finally, biblical righteousness extends to our network of relationships and to our community. It is concerned with the suffering of others. It is concerned with justice. It is concerned with integrity in the business world and with honor in the home. It is the heart cry to experience the good and the beautiful reflected in art and music and fashion. Disciples of Jesus hunger for this because their heart is being shaped to be compassionate and others-oriented. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We live in a terribly unmerciful world. God is merciful, isn't he? He's so merciful. Often far more than we are. I am apt to give up on people quickly. (laughs) She's gone too far. He knows better. How can God put up with him or her? 
How disgusted God must be with them. I have that train of thought until I hear a quiet whisper from the Holy Spirit saying, no, no, it is not me who is disgusted. It is you who are disgusted. I have not given up on them. We are so quick to assign judgment, but God is really, really slow to. Anger and revenge for us are like an elixir. They're like a magical potion. When we feel powerless, they give us anger and revenge, a jolt of energy. Mercy and forgiveness, by contrast, seem weak. But nothing, please get understand this, nothing proves more clearly, nothing proves more clearly that we have experienced the previous Beatitudes, the first four. Nothing proves more readily that we've experienced them by our readiness to forgive and to show mercy. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What distinguishes the pure in heart? Well, as the Sermon on the Mount will continue to bear out, it is purity. And in here, this purity is opposed to the ceremonial purity that the Pharisees sought. They forgot that the washing of their hands and utensils was symbolism. It was ceremony. And every time they did it, it was meant to whisper to them the importance of inward purity. Purity points to transparency and openness before God and an openness before others. Stott writes this, John Stott, about the pure in heart. He says, their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. The pure in heart hate hypocrisy, and they hate pretending at religion. Purity erupts from a heart that has emptied itself of self-centeredness and mourns over the effects of that self-centeredness. And what is their reward? They will see God. They will know Him, talk with Him. They will feel at ease and relaxed in His presence. There will be no, nothing to hide or to cover up. They will draw immense pleasure from seeing His smiling face over them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking is God's work. It is what God is doing. He's making peace. This verb, peacemakers, is the same word that Paul uses, some of you will know this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There it says, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Making peace, that's the same word. By, his, by the blood of his cross. We are not surprised, therefore, that God would call peacemakers sons of God because like apprentices in their father's shop, they are sharing in his work. Peacemaking is always painful, right? Peacemaking is always painful. There's pain of apologizing. I've done a lot of that through my years. There's the pain of giving up revenge and forgiving. There is the risk of getting involved in other people's conflicts, like a referee in a hockey game, only to find yourself getting a receiving a counterpunch. 
There is the nagging pain of having to refuse to restore someone when they don't change. When they refuse to change and not being able to be restored to them. Now these last two, blessed are the peacemakers, the last two are of the same quality. I'm just going to read the first one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything about the previous Beatitudes, they all lead us to become peacemakers in our relationships, to know how to resolve conflicts. But from this work of reconciliation, Jesus makes a seemingly random jump to hostile responses. What is the lesson here? I think it's pretty simple that not all peacemaking efforts work. Sometimes this is because, sometimes Christians are persecuted because they're ridiculous. Sometimes Christians are persecuted because they're obnoxious. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. He says it's on my account. It is for righteousness sake that sometimes the believer is not received. Stott says that persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. And so when we're on this side of it, how are we to respond? Fight back? Retaliate tit for tat? Withdraw from culture? Mope around in sullen self-pity? No, Jesus says rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Again, Stott says, we may lose everything on earth, but we shall inherit everything in heaven. The Beatitudes open with the promise of theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and it concludes with the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, these eight qualities, it's important to Think about them in the right way. They are not eight separate qualities. Rather, they depend on each other for fulfillment. They are webbed together to describe a spiritual condition, a new heart, a life that integrates mind, emotion, and will into a single whole, a free heart and a whole heart. A heart, by the way, freed up to love. This describes the character of a Christian. Life in God's kingdom, an upside-down life. So whatever caricatures you are drawing from our media-saturated world, or whatever characters you have drawn from uh, unhealthy churches in the past, this is the character, the picture, the texture, the fabric of a follower of Christ. The upside-down life is a blessed life. Really? It's kind of hard to believe. You know, in the Greek world, in Jesus' day, the word blessed, this Greek word, was used to refer to the elite, the upper crust of society, and the wealthy. Jesus turned that upside down. The blessed, according to conventional wisdom of the past and still today, is the rich not the poor. 
We regard as blessed the person who is perpetually sunny and happy and upbeat, not the person who sometimes takes evil so seriously that they mourn over it. We think it's blessed to be aggressive and strong and overbearing, not gentle and meek. We think the fool are blessed, not the hungry. We don't approve of those who get involved, who meddle around in other people's lives in that do-good work of making peace or showing mercy. We still equate happiness with isolation and independence. You know, for many of us, we are so used to our loneliness, we're not even aware that we're lonely. Many of us, especially men, especially middle-aged men, you're not even aware of how lonely you are. But we think that's independence and that isolation is blessed. Now do you see why Jesus' words are so hard to believe? Blessed? These, this group, that list? Blessed? Happy? Content? Yet the people who have taken Jesus' words seriously have found an upside-down contentment and happiness that is not cosmetic and that is not superficial. You know, this word blessed also carried with it the idea of one to be favored, envious. Actually, it was used in some context to describe the gods. One who is favored, one who is to be envied, a profile of someone we emulate, a hero. And you know, all that is required, by the way. The kingdom is so radically inclusive. All that is required of it is to ask for help from the right person. And to recognize that we all need a hero. You know, when we read, and we're going to find this out, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, the new law, we know that it's true. That it's from God. Why? Because we demand it from others. With a sense of innate justice, we demand others to be this way towards us. But when we are brutally honest, we excuse ourselves from following it. We excuse ourselves for not being the way that we demand others to be. So what are we going to (laughs) do? to the seemingly impossible demands of this new law. We need a hero. We need a hero who has the authority to forgive us. We need a hero who can give us this new condition, this new life. And this is what Jesus did. He is that new hero. This is what he became for us. In his death and in his sacrifice, On the cross, he became poor. That we might become rich. He faced evil. The worst evil. That we might be comforted. He went thirsty. That we might drink and be satisfied. We receive mercy. Because he received none. We are made pure. Because on the cross, the writers say, he became sin. We have peace with God because he became God's enemy. He did that by absorbing 
the punishment, the payment for our betrayals, big and small, of God. And he absorbed them on his own person so that he would have the authority, God would have the authority based on his death and sacrifice to forgive us, to pardon us, to forgive us, to free us. This is our new hero. And through him living in us, we will find the love and the power to say, God, I'm not like this, but I want to be. I want to be. This morning, we can invite him to lead our lives, whether it's for the first time or whether it's a renewal in your own heart. We can invite him to lead our lives today. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, you know every heart here, whatever they're struggling with this morning, whatever um, condition they've come in with this morning, Lord, some are broken and need a hospital. Lord, some are ghost-like in their spirit and need a new wave of life to roll over them and to breathe on them. Father, others are hurting and mourning and need that promise of comfort to materialize and to come through. Lord, some this morning feel hungry and poor. Thank you that you, out of your glorious riches, can meet the total demands of everything that we need. We pray that in these next moments, Lord, as we pray, as we sing, as we give our offerings, as we fellowship with one another, as we connect to you and each other, and Father, by your Spirit, to connect even to ourselves. Lord, we pray that your presence might be really real and really powerful. Our hearts would be open, longing for you. Lord, we commit this next moments, we commit the offering to you. But let not the offering be the the end. Let it be the beginning, Father, of giving our whole selves to you. To the glory of God. Amen.